Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Thanks very much for joining me for a conversation about... Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Thanks very much for joining me for a conversation about Michael Zoni's new book, The Art of Being Governed. Everyday Politics in Late Imperial China. This came out with Princeton University Press in 2017. Now, this is a book, as you'll hear me say repeatedly in the conversation to come, that I think is really masterful, it's really important, and it's really, really going to be of interest to anybody um, not only interested in Chinese history, but also interested in how we tell a story about the past using different kinds of sources, both from the past, but also from the present. So among the many things you'll hear us talking about in the hour to come include how participation, for example, in a ritual procession today might help us understand and access the history of temples, of people, of discourse hundreds of years ago, right? You'll hear us talking about the importance of kinds of sources like genealogies, like conversations um, with people, oral histories, folk knowledge. There's lots of attentiveness in the book toward the way we craft a story from the materials at hand and how to do so in a way that really gets at the beautiful, textured, complicated aspects of what it actually is as a human to live and to try to make a life with other humans. So the context here is specifically focused on um, the coast of southern China in the Ming dynasty. And it shows, as you'll hear us talking about again in the hour to come, that there were particular strategies, practices, and discourses that were used by ordinary people in really creative and ingenious ways to deal with and also to create opportunities from challenges that were posed by the Ming state. So it's ultimately going to argue that this pattern of political interaction was not unique to soldiers or to the Ming and has broader implications. And you hear us talk a little bit about that um, at the end of the conversation. So with that, it's a relatively extensive conversation, so I will um, let you get to it. But I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening. And I really hope that you enjoy and definitely try to stick it out to the end because there's a lot that we talk about at the end um, that really kind of bears on historical practice and bears on some of the questions that have come up in previous podcasts about other books. So here we go. I'm here today with Michael Zoni to talk about his book, The Art of Being Governed. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. Michael, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. Thank you, Carla. I'm very happy to be here. Um, So as is traditional for the channel, let's start off by hearing a little bit about what brought you to the field. Can you tell us how did you come to work on China and why Ming China specifically? Well, I uh, like a lot of people, I think around my age, uh, I um, traveled to China. 
Uh, I worked in China uh, in my teens, actually, as an English teacher in the early 1980s, which was a time of extraordinary transformation, extraordinary uh, change going on in China. And I just became fascinated by um, by these changes and by understanding what lay, what lay behind them. Um, and uh, so I started learning Chinese as a result of that. And I um, originally thought that the Chinese philosophy was what I wanted to study. But as I continued on in my studies, both in, in Toronto, where I'm from, and then later in Taiwan, uh, and then later in, in England, uh, I realized that the questions that interested me were really historical questions. So I became a, a so I became a Chinese historian. As for why I became a Ming historian, um, that's actually really uh, an accident. And I actually don't think of myself so much as a as a, as a Ming historian. Um, my first teacher of Chinese history was Tim Brooke, who works on everything from the UN to the 21st century. Uh, and uh, I have I have. Uh, unconsciously emulated that. I've written books, a book about the 1950s and 60s. But the, the reason why so much of the work I do is, is seen as being Ming history is that um, a lot of the um, questions that I'm interested in, that is to say how uh, and why pre-modern Chinese village society was organized in the way it was, what were the kinds of institutions that mattered in the lives of ordinary people, in uh, in late imperial China, the answers to a lot of those questions lay in the Ming, and so I became a sort of Ming historian, um, not because I decided I loved the Ming and then looked for questions related to the Ming, but I was uh, uh, looking at phenomena, historical phenomena that I was trying to understand, and it turned out that the answer to uh, understanding those phenomena often lay in the Ming. Fabulous. Thank you so much. And we'll talk over the course of our conversation about the relationships between um, understanding Ming history and the kinds of sources and the kinds of experiences that are not Ming that are brought to bear and vice versa. I think that's one of the really um, exciting things about the book. And I should say, before we go any further, um, I really love this book. Um, this, Michael, this is a really important book. And this is a book that I, is going to be a must read for China historians, no matter what period that they work on. And so congratulations. On, no, on, honestly, um, honestly, I'm not just saying that um, this is a really important book. So I'm especially thrilled that we have a chance to talk about it and share it with people. Okay, so what is the book about, right? For listeners, the book, so I'll, and I'll say a little bit and then ask how you came to this. So the book considers um, in lots of different ways how military institutions shaped the lives of ordinary people on China's southeast coast under the Ming Dynasty. It tells the stories, and really storytelling is so much at the heart of what these chapters do, and we'll get to that. It tells the stories of ordinary families who were navigating state institutions and forming and reforming all sorts of social relations in the process. So, Michael, what brought you to this topic? How did you come to focus on this and decide to write a book-length study of it? So, the the um, uh, the inspiration of the book actually um, came out of uh, my my first book, and my first book, as is often the case, was was based on my my PhD dis- or my my doctoral dissertation. Um, the first book was uh, all about figuring out. Um, how the Chinese lineage emerged as uh, a major institution in um, Southeast China, particularly, but in fact, um, uh, patriarchal uh, institutions, uh, uh, patrilineal institutions are very, very important all over China, even though they take different forms. So I spent a lot of time uh, in the 90s gathering uh, genealogies, 
I did that in um, libraries, both in the West, but also in libraries and archives in China. And a lot of time gathering genealogies in uh, the countryside. That's where the vast majority of genealogies continue to be uh, to be held. And it, I didn't really write about this in the in the dissertation or in the first book, but I realized that there was something very distinctive about the genealogies of families who had been soldiers in the Ming. I don't want to get sort of too too technical about it, but the Ming military institution was a hereditary one. Certain households were required to produce one able-bodied man to be a soldier, and that was a hereditary and a permanent obligation. Uh, and I noticed that these genealogies of um, uh, families who had been part of this institution had all kinds of fascinating documents, um, personal narratives, uh, contracts, legal documents that explained uh, their their uh, their relationship with this institution and how they interacted with it and how they negotiated it. and as you just meant, mentioned how that affected their their social world uh, and so the, the I put the project on hold for a bunch of years to work on another book on on uh, on modern topic but I was really always intrigued by trying to do something with these extraordinary stories uh, I think they also um, have something to tell us about. Uh, some bigger historical questions. So my work has always been very, very local, very, very, uh, it, it's, it's not quite micro-historical in the sense that is used about, about uh, uh, the work of some European historians, but I've always been very, very much, um, um, I've always very much tried to situate the historical sources and the historical analysis in a very local context. But that being said, I think that the book these stories can actually tell us something about very large questions about the Ming, how the Ming operated and how the Ming state interacted with the people in the Ming, but even about larger questions of how people in Chinese society work within and interact with institutions that, that, um, that shape their lives, but don't dictate their lives. So the title um, along those lines, right, the title, The Art of Being Governed, gestures directly to the work of James C. Scott. You talk a little bit about that influence in the book, but would you tell us a little bit about that now? Sure. Well, I worry a little bit that the that the um, that it gestures a little too much to, to, to Scott. Um, the uh, when when you when you at this at this point in my career, um, publishers and editors get involved in helping you choose the title, uh, and my editors really like this title um, in part because it, it has a lovely ring to it, but also because it does gesture so much to the work of another scholar. So uh, James Scott is a is a, um, uh, I find a really uh, important influence on me, but also a kind of interesting influence. If you read the book, you'll, you'll see that I don't actually agree with very much that he says. Um, so I find every time a new book, every time a new book by James Scott comes out and there have been, he's pretty prolific, uh, you know, even since I've been in the field, there've been a half dozen. Um, I, I, uh, I get all excited and I think, oh, this explains everything. Uh, and then I think a little bit of some more and I realize actually it doesn't really explain uh, uh, what I wanted to explain. And so uh, I guess I think of James Scott's work as being very good to think with. Uh, so he wrote a book about um, the Highland peoples of Southeast Asia called The Art of Not Being Governed. Uh, I think it's called an, an Anarchist History of Southeast Asia. 
um, which is full of, of interesting uh, ideas about how people have evaded the state historically. Um, and it turns out that for most of Chinese history, um, that's not a very helpful concept for thinking through what most people were doing. There have, of course, always been people in China who have evaded the state, but the vast majority of people didn't evade the state. They encountered the state, they lived with the state, they worked with the state, and they developed uh, what I've been calling the art of being governed. Uh, Strategies and techniques and tools and language that allowed them to calibrate their relationship with the state, to think about where it was good to be close to the state, where it was good to be far from the state, where it was good to do what they were told, where it was good to maybe uh, uh, not quite do what they were told, where it was occasionally necessary to resist entirely. Um, There's also, of course, a gesture to Foucault um, uh, and the art of of governmentality or the arts of governing. Um, I also wanted to make the point that just as there are techniques by which state actors govern, there are techniques by which ordinary people are governed. Great. And this really gets to the heart of something that comes up, I think, right in the introduction, which is, um, and you've just described it really well, so I won't ask you to um, talk too much more about it, but you talk about these strategies, right? And what people do um, to be governed in terms of everyday politics. And I want to mention that this is importantly different, and you and you are very explicit about this, from talking about state society relations, which keeps things quite static, right? And yeah. It's quite different. Do you want to say a little bit about the difference between that? Because, and, and I, I guess I am going to ask you to talk a little <laughs> bit. And the reason for that is um, many people in our field, and I would imagine many listeners may still be working on and conceptualizing projects that they think of or frame or have learned to frame in terms of state society interactions. And this is quite usefully and generatively different on what you're doing. So for you, what are the differences between these two approaches and what's important about those differences, if you will? Sure. Well, as I say in the book, um, you could, you could say what I do is state society relations. Um, and, and I'm waiting for the review where they say, this is a book about state society relations, which I'll then have to respond in a very prickly way. Um, you can call this state society relations, but I think that that is, as you say, static. Um, it is, um, simplistic. It's anachronistic and it's, it's anthropomorphic. Um, society is made up of people, um, and people, individuals, groups, families, and so on, but they, don't make their choices on behalf of society. Um, They don't think about themselves most of the time as being parts of a society. Uh, They think about their interests uh, and their interests as they, as they understand them. Not, I mean, I'm I'm not, uh, this is not a sort of narrow rational choice approach to understanding why people do the things they do, but um, they also, we also don't um, interact as people with states um, or at least we don't typically perceive uh, uh, the interaction as being with states. Uh, I uh, crossed an international border last night, uh, and I had a, a nice conversation with a young man. Um, and and uh, there was a, there was a lot of th- as as all of us do who cross international borders. There was a lot going on 
in that conversation. There were a lot of judgments that he was making about me and and judgments I was making about how best to present myself. Um, I don't think it really captures very much to say this was this this was me encountering the state, right? We encounter um, people who work for the state. We follow procedures that state that the state has has or the state that state actors have decreed for us. Uh, but uh, I, I just don't think that it captures very much to say this is me on behalf of society interacting with the immigration official on behalf of the state. I'm much more interested in, I guess, the um, the 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 techniques and the tools and the and the practices and the language that. Uh, are are deployed in both sides of that interaction, and that's really what I'm calling, uh, or what what I call following uh, Scott and um, uh, the anthropologist uh, Kirkfleet everyday politics. Uh, everyday politics is um, the encounter between ordinary people and um, the larger forces uh, that that um, uh, that they encounter, but that they don't necessarily accept that they negotiate, that they manipulate, that they turn to their advantage, that they make use of in other encounters with other people. Um, so that's that's a uh, uh, somewhat long-winded and not entirely coherent account of the difference between a project framed as state-society relations and a project framed as everyday politics. No, that was excellent. Thank you. So let's get right into the book. I'll, um, in the words of the book, and this is a quotation, um, and it's beautifully put, so I won't edit it at all. At the heart, <laughs> at the heart of the book are two simple questions: How did ordinary people in the Ming deal with their obligations to provide manpower to the army, and what were the broader consequences of their behavior? So we're talking about the army. We're talking about not just any ordinary people, but specifically the book focuses on military households, right? This is um, the bulk of the attention. So for listeners who may not have any idea what a military household was, can you very briefly, Michael, tell us what we need to know about what what was a military household and how do we what do we need to understand about that to move forward? Sure. Okay. Well, let me start with just a word or two uh, about the founder of the Ming. The first emperor of the Ming, the Hongwu Emperor Zhu Yanzhang, um, excuse me, who's often uh, compared, had been compared in the literature to Mao Zedong, um, in part because he came to power with a very, um, a very strong vision of what society should be. Um, he didn't just come to power thinking. Well, I've taken, you know, I've, I've, I've defeated all my enemies. Now, I, now, me and my descendants forever after can enjoy the spoils of being emperor. He had a social policy, uh, and it involved um, a society that uh, was largely static, largely immobile, largely um, self-sufficient, and largely self-satisfied. And um, as part of this uh, strategy, all emperors, all emperors, and in, in fact. You know, pretty much any um, state leadership in any society anywhere ever has needed an army. Uh, you need an army because you, you, you don't want to be invaded and you don't want to be overthrown by internal rebels. Uh, and the sort of combination of the need for a military force, which is a universal or a virtually universal need among states, and Zhu Yanzhang's vision of a, of, a, of a static society in which everyone had a role to play. As a consequence of that, he set up a system. He actually borrowed 
lots of elements of, of the system from the Mongols, whereby a certain proportion of the population, probably about 20%, although it was a military secret, um, the exact number, were hereditary military households. And it was their job to provide one soldier per household at all times to be on station in the army. Uh, so not everyone in a military household was a soldier. Military households had a permanent hereditary obligation to provide a soldier. Now, as you can imagine, some uh, uh, some military households, which were established in the early Ming in the in the 13, late 1360s, early 1370s, some of those households died out, uh, and then a soldier's name was taken off the rank. But a more common situation was that uh, natural increase would mean that the original nuclear household that was named a military household in the thirteen in say thirteen sixty eight would grow into a much larger uh, 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 social unit. Uh, the The initial soldier might have a bunch of sons. Some of those sons would have sons. Uh, some of them might not. Uh, and the, the 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 thing that really drives the story of the book is that these families then had to figure out ways to ensure that their hereditary obligation to provide a soldier was um, met because if you if you if if a certain military household the Chen family didn't have a soldier on station then some official would come down and and, and punish you and grab you and maybe take your stuff mm-hmm. um, but you also wanted to minimize the the impact of um, this obligation you wanted to make it more predictable you wanted to allocate it fairly across all of the people who belong to the household so um, I, that's probably enough for for the institution itself where that takes me is that um, because the institution endures formally until 1644, um, the, the, these families begin, in many cases, to compile documents to, to make records of their art of being governed. That is how they deal with this problem. And these then get inserted into their genealogies where we can find them even today. Thank you so much. And this beautifully takes us into part one of the book. So part one of the book looks in detail at this system. It looks at uh, the specific aspects of the practices that you mentioned in great and very productive detail. And you talk here about the importance of genealogies as sources, and you've just mentioned that as well. Now, early in the book, you say, and I, and I love this, and I wanted to, to ask you about this. This is a perfect time, I think. Fieldwork literally created the historical archive that I used in this book. So, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about what you think was particularly important and productive about your approach to fieldwork in accessing, finding, and working with these genealogies that were so important throughout the book, but um, especially, for example, in this first chart? Sure. Um, well, the first thing I should, I should make absolutely clear that, that my approach to fieldwork um, is one that I learned from uh, extraordinary uh, teachers and colleagues and friends. So I wouldn't want to take credit for that approach. Um, my doctoral supervisor was David Four, uh, then at Oxford, now at Chinese U. Uh, and and um, when I was doing my first phase of research in China, I was at the very great good fortune to work with Professor Zheng Zheman of Xiamen University. And so a lot of what I'm going to say now um, 
we, we, we can call it the Sony method, but it's really a method that a, a bunch of generations of scholars have developed and that I've been lucky enough to learn from and share with. So, um, let, let's take the let's take the question of the of the the the, the value of fieldwork at a couple of levels. The first is in a purely um, in a purely uh, 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 tangible way. Um, if you are interested in working with genealogies, um, the, there are repositories of genealogies all over the. Or there are several big repositories of genealogies. There's the Shanghai Library. There is the um, the uh, Utah uh, Family History Center, which um, was was uh, 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 related to the to the um, uh, the Mormon Church, um, but the vast majority of Chinese genealogies, as I mentioned earlier, remain in the hands of the um, uh, the people, the descendants of the people who compiled them. Uh, I did a quick uh, a comparison in the book between the Shanghai which is the, the Shanghai Library is the biggest uh, repository of uh, genealogies. Uh, the, the number of genealogies they hold, uh, as opposed as against the number of genealogies I was able to find in the field, and the difference is at least two orders of magnitude. Um, so for every genealogy in the Shanghai uh, catalog, there are probably 100 genealogies in the countryside. So that's the first part. There are just a lot of genealogies uh, that... that uh, if you want to read them, you need to go find the descendants of the people who wrote them and ask to see them. And they're generally extremely happy to uh, share them with you. And of course, one big change over the last 10 years is now they're often happy just to give you a, a USB stick, which has the genealogy. I spent a lot of times copying genealogies originally by hand, photographing them. Now it's much easier. The second thing is that, so that's one, one at purely sort of tangible level. The second is that reading the genealogy in context um, both the, the geographic context, both the phys physical context, and surrounded by old folks who have an interest in, in their history and the interest of their family is enormously productive. Um, some of the, um, I think the big discoveries of the book, uh, they're not necessarily framed as such in the book, but they're discoveries that came about because I was sitting around in someone's house reading genealogies and drinking tea and talking to them about their family. And then they would say something that uh, uh, their uncle in the next room disagreed with, and he would shout, no, that's completely wrong. And then he would rush over. And eventually all these people would gather in and uh, I would see that what seemed like a very straightforward family narrative is actually enormously complex. And then that would push me to try and unpack that complexity. Uh, the third level to the answer actually moves away from genealogies and, and maybe to some stuff that we'll talk about later, which is um, the, the uh, extraordinary uh, ritual revival that has been going on in, in many parts of China uh, over the last 20 years um, also creates uh, new resources for the historian. But maybe I'll leave that because that really comes up later in the book when we come back to that in a little while. Oh, we'll get there. You mentioned these moments that were formative for the book, sitting around and drinking tea, and then someone was yelling for their uncle. Were there any moments like that in the course of your work that stand out as particularly surprising or formative or notable for you that you would want to share? Since you brought it up, right? And of course, I think probably listeners and I are both at, at this point imagining like, oh, that must have been really exciting. And 
Yeah. Okay. Well, well. So, unfortunately, the one that is the one that is is uh, uh, jumping jumping into my head was uh, when a bunch of guys um, decided that they were were going to get me uh, drunk on their sweet potato homebrew, uh, and and it was you know I do my field work obviously mostly in the summer. It was a hundred degrees, uh, and there we were drinking bowl after bowl of, of sweet potato liquor. Uh, and then we all fell asleep. Uh, and, uh, after a while we, we gradually woke up and, um, uh, one of them said, you know, we, we talked for, we talked for hours, uh, about the, um, the historical sources that were around in this village. And then we woke up and, and one of them said, Oh, you know what? There's a bunch of stone inscriptions from the Ming. And off and off we off we trundled down the down the um, down the laneways uh, and and discovered an absolutely essential source. But let me actually give you another story, which is not from this book, but from my first book, um, because it really does, I think, illuminate very clearly the kinds of things that can happen. So I was trying to figure out the connection between two different um, branches of a lineage. Uh, and, um, there were problems when I looked at the one branch's genealogy and I looked at the other branch's genealogy, there were all kinds of inconsistencies. And, you know, with my sort of positivist uh, glasses on, I was trying to, um, resolve the discrepancies. And one of the people I'd been talking with a lot about this family, I'd spent a lot of time with him, basically took pity on me. And said, don't bother trying to do this because th there's a reason why they don't match up, which is that we've invented this connection. That, that we are not actually related. And this, of course, then raises the question, well, if you're not really related, why at some point 10 generations ago did your ancestors decide to try and make the case that you were related? And so here was a moment where, where basically – you know, and I could have I could have had these two genealogies in a library, and I could have been reading them, and I could have written a nice little account of the um, problems of transmission that led to there being these discrepancies. But it was being in the community, and 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 of course, once I was once they had revealed this to me, a whole bunch of other things that hadn't made sense made sense. And the question then again, as I said, became. What is the work that a, that a genealogy does in Chinese society? This was a Qing story, but what are the what are the what are the what's the what's the what's the work that a genealogy does? And that's a much more productive question than why does genealogy a not exactly line up with genealogy b? And it's a question that that ended up being a chapter and ended up being a bunch of articles I wrote, but I never would have asked that question without the encounter between the text and the, the, the people who lived in the community where these texts mattered and still matter. Great. Thank you. So if the first part of the book is set in the late 14th century, um, when the Ming military system uh, or the Ming system of military households was first established and in the native villages of soldiers in the Ming army, even as um, in the second chapter, which we won't have time to talk about it in any detail, but I'll just flag here. 
you look at the deterritorialization of soldiers from their native homes and the consequences of that. The second part of the book takes us mainly into the 15th and 16th centuries, and it looks at the operation of Ming military institutions in their maturity. So this part is set in the military bases where the soldiers in part one had been assigned. And one of the chapters in part two talks about pirates. So I have to ask you about pirates because, of course, we're going to talk about pirates. So chapter three shows how the juxtaposition of soldiers and smuggling um, was sort of a predictable result of what you call the long-term evolution of the institutions that were set up at the start of the dynasty. Now, if one of the main goals of the coastal garrison system was to patrol the seas to limit illegal trade, and the soldiers in the garrison took this as their primary objective. At the same time, some of the families took advantage of this position in the military to engage in illicit commerce. And the chapter very helpfully and very specifically tells us that the distinctions between piracy and smuggling and trade are kind of fungible here, right? They're not necessarily distinct sorts of things. So we explore this with you through the example of the Jiang family, and they were hereditary commanders of the garrison at Fuchuan. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about this story because it involves a pirate's sister and because it gives us a chance maybe to open up even just a little bit some of the wonderful storytelling that happens in the book by maybe just giving listeners one example of the many, many stories of the individuals and the individual families that they'll find here. So Michael, can you tell us what's up with this dude, what's up with his family, and what's up with the pirate's sister? (laughs) what's up with this dude all right so let me start actually by going back to something we talked about earlier which is which is the notion of everyday politics another element of that is the the my attempt to kind of complicate the notion that when you're dealing with the state there's only one thing there's you only have two choices you can either you know comply you can do what you're told or you can resist and this binary of compliance versus resistance, I think, runs through a lot of literature and doesn't actually correspond to most people's existence most of the time. Um, Most of, you know, this is true of us. It's also true of people in the Ming. Most of our relations with the government, with the state are in in a kind of gray area in between. Um, Now, the piracy story kind of is the, the point in the book that is closest to um, the, 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 the resistance pole or the disobedience pole, because basically these guys are, um, totally undermining the very institution that they're supposed to be upholding. Um, so the, 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 we also have to say one word, one, one other word about Zhu Yanzhang, which is that his, um, his, this whole vision of a sort of static, this is the, the founding emperor, the Ming, uh, his vision of this static immobile society, um, didn't have any room for private foreign trade because he thought all that would do was stimulate greed and avarice and, and, and people not being happy with their lot in life. So there was a strict Ming prohibition on um, uh, overseas trade. That being said, this is a part of China which for centuries had depended heavily on overseas trade with Southeast Asia, with Japan, with the Philippines, um, and so on. And so this was enormously disruptive to local life. The, um, the, for reasons that scholars still don't fully understand, 
um, the tension between a, the, between people who wanted to trade and a policy that said trade was illegal, um, uh, this tension explodes in the 16th century, uh, which is a t- becomes a time of uh, tremendous violence um, in the coastal areas as merchant bands um, engage with the navy. Uh, they they uh, come ashore and they plunder. They sometimes even occupy. Uh, parts of the coast, they terrorize the coastal populations. Um, And the historical sources, the Chinese historical sources deal with this in a very simple way. They say it's the Japanese. Uh, They say that the the problem is caused by the greed of these Japanese pirates called the Wako or the Woko. And we've long known that this is an oversimplification, that lots of the Woko are actually Chinese themselves. But so let's set this. So that's a long way of setting the stage. Uh, Jiang Jishu's family were commanders of a coastal uh, uh, base, a naval base, and their job was to stop the uh, Japanese pirates from doing mischief. Um, the the Jiang genealogy is a handwritten genealogy, and it was never really intended for uh, 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 external consumption. Um, it includes lots of, so lots of, lots of genealogies when they are being prepared for publication from the historian's perspective, they take all the good stuff and they get rid of it. Um, and, and the editors will, will turn every member of the lineage into a paragon of scholarship, every woman into a paragon of, um, um, uh, uh, fidelity and so on. Um, but this genealogy contains kind of notes towards uh, a future genealogy, which make clear a couple of things. The first is that uh, Jiang Jishu, the commander who lived in the late 16th century, um, has all kinds of very complicated ties to the very pirates he's supposed to suppress. Uh, he has social, so so he has social connections to them. Um, the, the, he he, uh, but actually. Even even before we get there, he also has um, a very complex role because when he when he um, captures a pirate vessel and takes all the stuff, uh, takes all the all the booty off the vessel, uh, he doesn't um, return it to the government. He doesn't destroy it. He sells it, or he um, distributes distributes to his men. With the sense that they're going to sell it, so the whole story, you know, from the from the get go, the story is more complicated than mm-hmm. um, than simply a matter of suppressing these terrible pirates. And then there's the story of the pirate's sister. I don't know. I don't know. Let's do it. I don't know. You know, these these are. This is one of those points where the historian has to stress. This is what the sources tell. I don't know. I don't know what what's what what the reality is. There's something going on here because so um, at a certain point. Um, uh, Jiang Jishu and his forces arrest the prime, the, the leading pirate of the region. Uh, and he's with his, and, and they arrest him and I think his relatives and his sister. Uh, and elsewhere in the genealogy, we hear that, um, that uh, uh, something is not quite kosher here because um, uh, Jiang Jishu uh, brings the pirate's sister into the fort accompanied by drums and gongs and a great ceremony. And this shows that he really uh, is, is house. He is too fond. Of, he's, he's uh, too motivated by sexual matters. So already there's a, there's a hint of something going on. And then the details 
as, as, as one of his relatives write it, is that he actually forms a, forms a blood brotherhood bond with the pirate sister, um, which I'm assuming is, is uh, a, a, a kind of euphemism for has an affair with her. But that as a result of this, they then begin involved in a commercial exchange, and she gives him all kinds of trade goods, gold and silver and tropical woods and so on, which he then sells onward. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, this is presented as, as a rumor that is told about him um, that, that he needs to be clear uh, to dispel. But then there's all this evidence elsewhere in the genealogy that there really is something at the bottom of this, that he does have close social ties with the pirate, that he has very close ties with the pirate's sister, maybe romantic ties, maybe purely commercial ties, I don't know. Um, but the message of the story, uh, you know, other than being a great romantic uh, Pirates of the Caribbean sort of tale, is that, um, as you say, there is no way to say, uh, to make a clear distinction between the law, the keepers of the law, the soldiers, and the pirates, the breakers of the law. They are, uh, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a very um, gray line. Uh, and the, the other point that I think comes out of the story is that um, Jiang Jishi is only one of a large number of uh, officials mm-hmm. and officers who are accused of smuggling, who are accused of engaging with piracy in the period. And this gets to, I think, one of the core arguments of the book, which is that it's precisely because they are in the system that they are able to take advantage of the system. The most obvious way, of course, is that if you are uh, an officer in the Navy, or if you are a relative of the officer in the, of an officer in the Navy, you have a real advantage in maritime smuggling because you know when the Coast Guard is going on patrol. So you have an advantage over over pirates, over smugglers who don't have that kind of knowledge. Uh, and I think this is, and so so the the term that I use for this is regulatory arbitrage. It's a term that comes from finance, but I think it applies really, really well here. Regulatory arbitrage is to take advantage of the difference between multiple regulatory systems or between the difference between a regulatory system and your personal reality um, to gain benefits. And I think that really does describe very well what Jiang was doing. He was taking advantage of his position in one one governmental institution, which is the military and the and the and the, the navy and the and coastal defenses, to gain advantage in another system, which was the system of regulating international commerce. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of the stories I tell are aimed at um, are aimed at showing that a crucial part of the art of being governed for Ming soldiers, but also for other people, was this ability to work different parts of the system to advantage. Excellent. And any casting directors who are listening to this right now, you heard it here, Johnny Depp as Jiang and Tessa Thompson as the pirate sister. I want to see this happening. Let's make this happen. So I'm, 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 old, I'm old school. It's got to be Keira Knightley as the pirate sister, but okay. 
No, 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 Tessa Thompson. No. But okay. we can have that argument after. Right. We can maybe take a poll of listeners. Okay. <laughs> I think this is like 100% Tessa Thompson. But anyway. Right. <laughs> so as we move to, so there's also a chapter and chapter four um, in this part of the book that we won't have a chance to talk about. Um, but just to flag this for listeners, this is a really fascinating chapter that looks at the new social relations that are formed as an unintended byproduct of Ming military institutions. And it looks especially at soldiers' marriage practices. It looks at the temples where they worshipped, and it looks at the schools where some of them studied. There's a lot of fascinating material there. But then we move to part three. Now, part three is set in the agricultural colonies where some of the soldiers in part one had been assigned. And really fascinatingly, um, some listeners might not realize most soldiers in the Ming army were actually farmers. Um, And you look at that, and it's a really fascinating aspect of chapter five. Chapter five also talks in detail about this notion of regulatory arbitrage that you just very helpfully describe. And thank you so much for that. But chapter six, right, which is also um, part of this part of the book, is what I want to move to because this is a really particularly fascinating chapter in terms of thinking about the larger theme that really infuses the book and that has been very much part of this conversation so far, which is the nature and the exciting nature of the kinds of sources that you're bringing to bear in telling the story. So chapter six looks at how households stationed in the colonies integrated with their surrounding communities. And as an example to take us into this history, you talk about the rituals of the Hoshan Temple, which is a small temple in the village of Huto. Huto was the location, um, for listeners who may not be familiar, of one of uh, Yongning Guard's military colonies. Okay, for, so- for listeners who may not be familiar. There right, right. Exactly. Obviously, you're going to know this now. It's all clear now. Just think okay. about Tessa Thompson as a pirate sister. And just everything sorry, sorry, is fine. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, it's completely fine. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about here is the your own participation in a ritual procession in 2014. So, Michael, can you talk about that experience? And in particular, how was that experience valuable as a source for understanding the Ming history that you're talking about here sure. in this chapter? Okay. Um, well, I should say that, you know, I, 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 um, I talk about one instance of the ritual, which was in 2014, but I actually participate, I attended the, I attended the ritual annually for a number of years. Um, so I had a chance to, to think it through. Um, the, the, so you mentioned at the very beginning, my two big questions, what, 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 what how did families deal with their responsibilities and what were the broader consequences of their, of their, of their actions? And this chapter in some ways is about the second question, because the being in the, being a military household, um, meant that you were moved around, you were deterritorialized, you were sent uh, to places that you didn't know, and you had to make a life there. And so this chapter is really about how some of these uh, military households who were sent into the interior of Fujian province to farm, how they made a life there. Um, and I should just elaborate on, on why so many of the soldiers were farmers. It again goes back to the the, the founding of the institution, the idea was that military would be self-sufficient, that some parts of the military would would uh, soldier and other parts of the military would farm to support, to feed the rest of the army who were soldiering. So um, the, the, uh, uh, 
the the I I first went to this area um, actually on the advice of a PhD student at Xiamen, uh, a, a great young scholar called Gao Zhifeng, who um, had been working on this working on the history of this region much later, but had said that there were a lot of um, descendants of military households still living in the region. And so my first trip was really a collection trip. I went to to see if I could gather some genealogies from. Um, these these military households, the former military households living in this in this interior part of the province where they were farming, um, and one of the things you do when you when you do this kind of field work is you visit temples, you you read all the inscriptions you can find, you learn a little bit about the local folklore and so on, and um, I happened upon the Hoshan Temple uh, in in this little township, um, and. You know, for most people who aren't historically minded or aren't that interested in Chinese popular religion, this temple is totally nondescript. It looks like every other temple that you could find in every other village. There must have been millions of temples like these. Uh, And one of the kind of challenges, but also I think one of the cool things about about this chapter is that I'm able to take this very, it's a very small temple. It's not recorded anywhere, but I'm able to take this temple, which looks like every other temple and, and write a history of it. And the history of it emerges out of, out of my analysis of this ritual procession. So let me get to the, let me get to the procession. The procession again is like at a certain level, it's like every other um, ritual procession happens in millions of villages all over China every New Year's where the god is taken out of the temple and brought around the community to um for the for the members of the community to worship uh, and also for the god to bring blessings and dispel evil forces so um one noteworthy but hardly unusual aspect of this um of this temple's festival is that there are two gods in the temple and we can actually date the arrival of one of these gods uh, relatively precisely it, uh, uh, because we know the spread of this deity through China uh, chronologically. It, it spread through China right around the time that the colonists, that the, sorry, that these soldiers were being assigned to these, to these uh, uh, areas to farm. And the other deity um, that is processed around is the, the 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 local protective spirit. We know that he's been a deity in the region for quite a bit longer. What what really makes the story work is that this is a process, This is a procession that visits about fifteen villages, and as it turns out, through very very careful reading of genealogies and gathering of folklore and so on, it becomes clear that there are two groups of villages. There are the villages that were established before the Ming Dynasty, that is, of the previous residents. And there were the villages that were established by these military households when they were brought in. And if we look at using um, evidence from the genealogies, but also evidence from the iconography and also evidence from stone inscriptions that are in the temple, we can see that what happened was that the the new arrivals um, basically tried to assert uh, their power in the community by installing their own god in the temple and displacing the older god. And there ensued literally a century of competition over whose god was going to be represented in the temple. And ultimately, a compromise was worked out. 
both communities um, were allowed to install their gods in the temple. And that's how the temple became and how it remains today, a temple with two gods. It's, of course, very, very, I mean, it's, I wouldn't want to say that the, the ritual that I saw in the years between about 2009 and 2015 is a kind of window onto history. Um, rituals change over time. This ritual was interrupted for 30 years or 40 years by, by the Maoist period. But I do feel quite strongly, um, and I think certainly my, my colleagues, um, I mentioned my two teachers, but my other colleagues in what's called the Huanan Xuepai, the um, South China School, feel very strongly that we can use ritual performance in the present as a window into the evolution of social, social relations in communities. That if we're lucky and if, and if, if everything aligns, you can, you can see how the ritual that is performed today has underneath it layer upon layer upon layer of what the ritual looked like 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. For one obvious example, um, we can see who participates in the ritual now, who used to participate it at the previous moment, and who used to participate it at another previous moment. And in the Chinese context, who participates in a ritual isn't just who participates in ritual. It's also how a community is defined, who belongs to the community, who has the rights of membership in the community, and who and who does not. And so what this procession today sheds light on is a process whereby uh, beginning in the 1370s, these soldiers were moved into this new society, and they had to come to terms with the locals and form relations with them. Um, the temple procession today is a kind of legacy of that centuries-long process of new social relations being created. And one thing that makes it really cool is, of course, that the institution that created these social relations, the Ming military household system, um, only lasted 300 years. It was eliminated in the 1640s. Um, and then the Qing, which replaced it, that was eliminated too. Um, so the institution is gone, but the social relations that were produced by the institution persist. And, and they become a potential historical source. But it only works if we, if we take the time to, to visit, these, visit these communities and try and, and figure out based on the historical source, the written sources, ritual performance, and what the locals can tell us, what all of these mean together. So it's really interesting about this among many um, other interesting things. But for me, listening to you describe this and the significance of this and also reading about it in the book links up this conversation or this part of the conversation with something that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, and that is, it seems like also your participation in the ritual, even if it's as an observer, cements or influences your place in the community in a way that gives you access to the kind of fieldwork opportunities that make the work that created this book possible, right? Oh, isn't, so that, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, these, so these are questions that, that typically anthropologists think about much more than, much more than historians do. Um, I, I don't have a terribly sufficient sophisticated response to, to your to your comment, um, except to say that um, I guess two things. You, you know, one is that is that um, the the um, 
for, for this for this even to work, one needs to develop uh, a, a sense of trust and a sense of sympathy with the people you're talking with. Um, and and I've seen, unfortunately, mostly students come blundering in uh, and and explain to people what their history is and how they can help us uh, confirm that history. And that's not a very successful uh, approach. Um, but but it does. I mean, it does sort of. I guess what I'm getting at is that is that it requires a certain it requires quite a strong um, ethical sense. Um, and then the flip side of that is that you have to be very careful um, that you don't become too involved in the political tensions um, within the community. Um, and then, and that's and that can be very difficult. Um, the the I have one one very vivid memory of. Um, being asked to attend a funeral uh, by someone I had worked with a lot. Uh, and um, I said, sure, I'll go to the funeral. And the next thing I knew, I was in a motorcycle sidecar at the head of the funeral procession. And off we went from the village up into the mountains. Uh, and uh, with me kind of like the leader of the funeral procession. And it was a very awkward situation. I, I figured out pretty quickly what was gone. Basically, um, Burial is is illegal now in in China. That all the, the the rule is cremation, and and he wanted to bury his relative, and he was pretty confident that if I was at the front of the procession, the police would the police would not stop him. Um, that one I felt sort of. I mean, you know, there there are there are much worse ways to get involved in local politics. Um, but again, these are, these are, these are, so I, I actually, even after I realized what, what, what I thought was going on, I didn't, I didn't mind too much. Um, but there, you can imagine there, there could be a lot more awkward and a lot more politically problematic positions that one could find oneself in. Um, again, these are not sort of things that, um, we get taught in grad school, right? They're not part of the normal training of a historian, but they, 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 they are issues that I need to think about. Um, another issue that that um, that uh, anthropologists tend to think of more than historians is um, how to repay the extraordinary kindness of the people who are willing to take time to share their lives with you. Um, you know, we we you used to always take cigarettes to the librarians uh, in the old days when there weren't when there weren't when it was hard to get foreign cigarettes in America. Um, it's one thing to take a gift to a librarian, but uh, the I feel I have an enormous debt to all of the um, all of the people who help me. Right. So we are rapidly approaching the conclusion of our conversation, if you can believe that. And there's so much more in the book. I just want to mention for listeners that the storytelling in this chapter continues with a mysterious man of ambiguous background who turns up one day in Doppler colony. Dun, dun, dun. And you call him... You call him our Ming Martin Gare. So I'm just going to leave that tantalizingly there as one of many, many reasons listeners should become readers and pick up the book. And you'll, I need you'll you find to take this, this to in Hollywood. chapter six. Yeah. All right. Uh, I will, I'll work on it. Let's, okay. <laughs> as long as Tessa Thompson's involved, I'm all good. Unfortunately, exactly. unfortunately, I'm not going to budge on that. This is a real concern. Um, in the whole book, um, the pirate's sister is about the only woman. And we can, and you do talk a little. That's bit about unfortunately, that, right? it's, it's, um, it's an institution that's, a, that's can, mostly that's, about men. But what can you do? 
I hear you. I mean, I'm in the middle of trying to finish a book that's entirely about men because those are the only ones mentioned in the sources that I'm talking about. So, I mean, I think, um, and this is another conversation, right, that we could have. And I'm sure this is a phenomenon that listeners who are also working in various fields of history might also come up, you know, come up against. And it's an important one to talk about. But I think at the very least, just talking about the fact of that being a problem with the sources and talking about how we might creatively highlight that um, is at least one step of many that we can take. But there's also a fourth part of the book, so we won't right. So we won't have a chance to talk about this in any detail. I just want to mention for listeners, um, this part of the book is set in the garrisons after the fall of the Ming. And if listeners are interested in what happens after um, these Ming military institutions no longer exist, but they continue to matter to the people who had lived in them, um, listeners will find a whole lot in chapter seven about this. And there's all kinds of fascinating stuff happening happening here um, about also a god who becomes an ancestor. And just like I will dangle tantalizingly the Ming Martin Gare, I will tantalizingly also dangle. How does a god become an ancestor? Read chapter seven and you'll find out. So once we get to the end of the book, we come to a conclusion. The conclusion proposes some broader ways of thinking about um, the art, as you call it, of being governed in late imperial China, but also beyond. It not only recaps the broad types of strategies described in the book, and um, you talk about these as strategies of optimization, proximity, regulatory arbitrage, as we talked about, and precedent. And precedent is something that's very much at the heart of Chapter 7. But you also talk about issues of legibility in the archive. You talk about the importance and presence of contracts as sources and evidence for a history of understanding commodification. You talk about an an agenda for future comparative study. I mean, there's enough in this conclusion, Michael, to make a book of its own, right? There's so much fabulous stuff happening here. What I want to ask you specifically, though, is about something you talk about, which I think really nicely brings us toward the end of our time, which is contemporary echoes of these Ming strategies. You talk a little bit about that and about the importance of thinking with that in the conclusion. Is there anything you'd like to say about that now? Sure. Well, we talked a little bit about the pirate chapter uh, and how I suggested that that in that chapter that, um, that uh, the Jiang family was able to succeed so well as smugglers because they were also um, parts of the military system. Um, there is more than an echo there. Um, the uh, the um, scandals of the 1990s in Fujian, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the, uh, oh, the Yuenhua, the Yuenhua scandal um, was basically all about how the People's Liberation Army Navy was involved in um, massive smuggling. Uh, in coastal Fujian, and you know, sort of exactly the same places as this was going on uh, 400 years earlier. Um, that being said, uh, I I I don't want to make the argument that there is this kind of eternal. I'm I'm precisely trying to get away from the argument that there are eternal Chinese cultural practices that explain everything. And so I don't want to suggest that that um, the, the the there is this element in Chinese culture or Fujian culture that makes it particularly susceptible to these kinds of um, ways of manipulating the situation, ways of working the system to one's to one's advantage. That being said, 
there are the Chinese have a long history of uh, in living under a state. Um, I didn't think I'd be quoting Xi Jinping in this podcast, but you know, China does have five thousand years of continuous civilization. The the um, and so it's 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 it actually isn't that surprising that there should be modes of being governed, techniques of dealing with the state that um, have developed over that period of time and that and that and that persist. Um, certainly, one of the ones where I do feel comfortable. Uh, seeing a contemporary echo is in the use of language and the use of legibility. What I argue in the book, and I think it's true today, is that, um, and this again borrows off an argument that James Scott makes about in the book called Seeing Like a State, that um, states try to understand the people who they administer. And people can also realize that uh, um how they are understood by the state, how they are represented by the state is something they can affect and something they can, they can frame in ways that work for them. They can, for example, uh, adopt in their, in, in stuff they uh, uh, say themselves, they can adopt the specific language of the state. And that gives them a power in society because it suggests that what they're doing is authorized um, or legal. Um, So, I mean, I guess I'm 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 kind of hedging my bets here. Um, there are certainly um, um, there is certainly regulatory arbitrage all over contemporary China. That's something when I talk about this book in China, people are totally clear about. Um, what exactly is the relationship with the regulatory arbitrage that I've seen in the Ming and the Qing? I'm not I'm not quite sure, but there's certainly there certainly are so there are certainly parallels. Whether those parallels are echoes is something I, I haven't really come to terms with. Thank you so much. So, Michael, now that we're at the end of our conversation, there's so much more that we could have talked about, right? And I think that's been clear throughout. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to discuss, but that you'd like to raise, mention, um, or you know, talk about for our listeners? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll just say, I'll just, in, in a sense, reinforce something I, I said earlier. I was listening to the wonderful podcast you did with Fabio Lanza about uh, his book, The End of Concern, and one of the questions that came up a lot in that. Um, conversation was the issue of why why go to China and what it means to go to China. Uh, and for example, if you deal with the Ming, why why would you go to China at all? Certainly, if you deal with anti- ancient China, um, the the all of the sources are available here. Um, I think I've, I've hinted at uh, my answer to that question, um, but I, I want to say just one or two, one or I want to say two things about this. The, the first reason to go to China is uh, something that is really new and exciting, which is the um, extraordinary um, uh, scholarly community uh, within China, um, working really on on any topic that you could imagine, Um, not necessarily asking the same questions as we are asking, but working with um, tremendous sophistication. Uh, I'm just editing a book of, of essays by younger Chinese scholars who also work on the military system, um, and and they're they're these are all scholars who who are young. They don't necessarily speak English. They're not coming to AAS. They're not coming to our big conferences. They may be in a decade or so, but they're not yet. So one reason to go to China is to be part of that community and to talk to that community. And I feel in in some ways the 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 I'm looking forward to the reviews of this book, 
I'm really looking forward to the reviews of the Chinese translation because I think that's a that's a community that I'm really interested in hearing from. And then the second thing, which I've, I've hinted at a bunch of times already, um, is is um, that that it's it, it, it's not transparently obvious that everyone needs to go to China to collect sources. Um, I, I couldn't do the work I do without that. Um, David Holm put it really nicely in a book a few years ago where he talked about how China is um, simultaneously undergoing both an extraordinary cultural revival and an extraordinary cultural extinction episode as villages are bulldozed over, temples are pulled down, sometimes rebuilt, but often not. Um, and I would just say that that one of the messages I hope the book will convey is that this, whatever you want to say about this simultaneous revival and extinction, um, it creates all kinds of resources for historians. Uh, and, and one reason to go to China is to figure out how to incorporate those resources in your work. So you mentioned this edited volume that you are working on right now. Um, what are what's occupying most of your intellectual time and excitement right now? What can we hope to see and read next from you? Well, uh, um, I'm glad you I'm glad you added the caveat intellectual because I spend I I have a, a busy job um, as as um, director of the Fairbanks Center, which is um, extraordinarily exciting intellectually. I. Every week I get to hear all these amazing talks, but that does occupy a lot of my time. But in terms of my next intellectual project, um, I've spent, as has become clear multiple times over the last hour, I've spent a lot of time in rural China over the last 30 years. And so my next book is actually a, um, I think it'll be called Village China, and it is a history of uh, 20th century China told from the perspective of rural society. Uh, in other words, told from the perspective of what was until recently the majority of the Chinese people. Um, I want to look at, um, uh, I guess, three, there's three sort of big, big arguments that I see coming together. Um, the first is um, uh, the, 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 the role of ordinary rural people as participants, as agents in the big history of the 20th century. Um, the second is uh, to look at sort of overcoming the, there's a, a lot of people who work on politics now, right, about overcoming the 1949 divide. Um, there's also a 1978 divide, of course, between the Maoist era and the reform era. And most studies of rural China, I think, haven't don't really cross that divide. And I think the experience of life in village China uh, doesn't actually necessarily um, fall into three neat packages pre-1949, 1949 to 1978, 1978 to the present. To give just, to give just one example, um, there are all these narratives of, of the uh, heroic uh, reform, um, uh, the heroic innovators of uh, uh, the township and village enterprises in the 80s. Um, one way in which who are sort of, you know, magically become um, as soon as as soon as the force of the state is lifted, um, become um, neoliberal uh, uh, paradigms of, of uh, um, uh, economic development. Um, they were, of course, heroic, um, but they weren't necessarily innovating. In many cases, they were going back to what they had been doing in the 1950s. Uh, and then the third um, argument in the book is um, to try and put uh, rural China 
into a global history of the 20th century. Um, just to give one very quick example, um, obviously lots of things about China are distinctive, but all over the world, the story of the 20th century has been a story, the, 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 the rural story has been a story of depopulation and in a sense, the disappearance of rural society. And rural society disappears in different ways in different places, but I think it's going to be really interesting to look at at how the Chinese version of rural depopulation and rural exodus fits into other stories. So that's a big project. That's going to be a bunch of years, but that's what I'm working on now. Well, best of luck with that project. And thanks for taking time away from that to talk about this book with me. Um, It's really been a pleasure. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and come back and check us out again soon.